You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome two Mexican Marxist scholars, Sebastian Hernandez and Alain Data. They'll be discussing some of their critiques of the pedagogy of economics and of Marxism in Mexico and their discovery of the temporal single system interpretation of Marx. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we're going to be talking to some Mexican Marxists. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is September 22nd, and we're going to be talking about some of the revelations that have surfaced since the publication of Bob Woodward's book, Peril. Actually, the book just came out yesterday, the 21st, and I don't think, Andrew, you haven't actually read the book yet, have you, I assume? No, I haven't read the book, but I saw the movie. (laughs) We're going off of media coverage from people who got advanced copies of the book. That's The media coverage has been going on for the past week. feels a little bit like college literature course, where everyone's talking about a book they didn't read. One of the big revelations from the book was about the way in which the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark A. Milley tried to preempt what he saw as a potential nuclear strike or other type of war that Trump might attempt to start in his post-January 6th unhinged, desperate attempt to stay in power. Andrew, what, what are your takeaways? There are a couple of things. One is the wag the dog nuclear strike that Milley was concerned about. And Nancy Pelosi was like really concerned and she got Milley to say, OK, look, I agree with you. You know, so Milley just basically says to the military people in, in the chain of command, I have to be notified of uh, what's happening here. You and I know that a lot of the press and the Republicans are livid and Trump. You know, others are claiming that Milley committed treason. Woodward and his co-author Robert Costa are saying, no, that didn't happen. You've misunderstood uh, what took place. But to my mind, I mean, the real story is there's an unhinged, desperate, fascistic president there. And that's where the blame lies. And the blame lies not with Milley for trying to keep things from reaching the level of nuclear war. Why is everybody focused on on Milley and what he may or may not have done? The blame rests with Trump. It rests with the 74.2 million people who voted for him. It rests with the Republican Party. It rests with the soft on Trump left and everybody who allowed things to get to that point. So I don't understand why all this focus on, on Milley. You know, then there's the other issue, which is that the Chinese government or at least the military, was, was totally freaked out. They were afraid of Trump starting a war with them. I, I don't think that that was a, a, a fear of a nuclear attack, but of war and merely having to twice, once right before the election and once uh, after the uh, fascistic insurrection, merely having to try to talk down his counterpart in the, in the Chinese military, General Lee. It's quite a dramatic picture of the entire machinery of American government just hinging upon the paranoid delusions of Trump and nobody in the Republican Party willing to stand up to him, none of his advisors willing to stand up to him, and this unelected chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff 
who is trying to like scramble to save the country or save the planet from total chaos. It's just incredible that we got to that point, but then maybe not that incredible. Right. I mean, I I, I, I want to say, like, although I'm definitely saying that there should not be focus on Millie for committing treason or whatever that nonsense is, I don't necessarily believe that he had the most benign motives. It could be just a calculated view that nuclear war would not be in the national security interest of the United States, rather than concern for the people of the planet or, or, or anything like that. I don't know. But I certainly agree with you about kind of everything being broken to allow there to be a president who's like this, then to allow him to get to this point. You know, I think it's pretty clear. Everybody is now pretty clear that the Republican Party is the way it is because of the political incentives for the people who are in office to continue in office. And that means that they have to pander to the base. And for some reason, the base that said we want somebody who's going to blow everything up still wants somebody who was in everybody's estimation, quite close to blowing everything up. There's no surprise there. So the whole thing is really, really dangerous. It's totally out of control. And you have a a, a document written like 250 years ago, U.S. Constitution. You know, that was in the age before nukes. And I don't understand how you can let one person have all this power. The fact that you've got somebody on the Joint Chiefs the chair says, keep me informed about every step. I don't want anything to happen without my having a say. That's a, it's a kind of a check and it's kind of a balance, but it ain't much. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, and it also is just remarkable that because of the, like you said, the political incentives for the Republican Party to just green light, whatever the Trump's delusion of the day is, the only people in this reporting of the Bob Woodward book, the only people that served as some sort of potential check on Trump were the unelected people in the book. They had Mark Milley, who is just an appointee. You have Dan Quayle, uh, who is no longer an elected representative, on the phone with Mike Pence telling them that he can't throw the election for Trump. But there's no one who's actually an elected official in the Republican Party who is willing to stop the train from going off the rail, stop the bus from driving off the cliff. They're just up for whatever happens because they, they feel like their political fortunes are completely tied to the cult of Trumpism. Yeah. You know, there were people who tried at various points in a very mild way. I guess they were hoping to build up some steam of support behind them, I guess, out of the sense that they couldn't uh, overturn this alone. But at every step in the way, they, they get thwarted. And, you know, ultimately, the calculation it very clearly became the base will not allow it. The base is with Trump. This is very clear after January 6th when you get McConnell, McCarthy, all these people, you know, just chomping at the bit, willing to throw Trump to the dogs. But the base went the other way. The local Republican parties that had Trumpites installed in positions, they went the other way. And those those people backtracked. There's even a revelation in the Woodward Costa book, I think, that McConnell is like through back channels telling the, the Biden administration, don't contact me. Because if you do, that'll be viewed as me colluding with you. And that that's like the end of me. So as I, I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the other things that people are talking a lot in the, about in the book is how close Mike Pence came to 
attempting to not certify Biden's election victory. Apparently, he was really looking for some sort of way to, to give Trump what he wanted. He was terrified of defying Trump and was casting about looking for some sort of way out that he could extricate himself from having to certify this election for Biden, which is really remarkable. I mean, I feel like I mean, we all know that things were crazy and that Trump was trying to throw the election for himself. But it, he, I think even for me, it was like hard to comple- completely take that seriously. Once it was announced that Biden had won, I think I assumed that somehow it was all going to turn out in the favor of democracy. But we came really close. I mean, this whole thing hung on the on the shoulders of this one man, Mike Pence, who was desperately trying to not do the right thing. Right. That, that, that That's the key takeaway is that not only did Pence investigate whether he had any authority to do what Trump wanted, it was that he was looking, trying everything. And only after talking to Quayle, and I'm sure he had legal advisors go through the Constitution and precedent with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, he was really trying to do what Trump wanted him to do. And we came very close. I mean, the election was not that close. What if it had been really, really close? What about if there were only hundreds or tens of votes in one of these states or two of these states that separated Biden from Trump and had gotten to the Supreme Court? There's so many things that could go wrong. And the, the, the Trumpites had their hands in a lot, a lot of pots to try to make it go the other way. It, it was It's really like kind of dodged a lot of bullets. Right. And then there's the scene in the book where Trump is reacting to Pence saying that he can't throw the election for him. Trump says, you don't understand, Mike, you can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. <laughs> right. And then Pence says, you're not going to be sworn in. There's not a scenario in which you can be sworn in. And Trump says, we need to figure out how to deal with it, how we want to handle it, how we want to talk about it. And then he says, you are weak. You lack courage. You betrayed us. I made you. You were nothing. Your career is over if you do this. And then a Pence advisor saw Pence leave the Oval Office. His name is Tom Rose. He later told others that Pence looked chalk white, like someone who had received terrible news at a hospital. During this conversation, Trump is saying to Pence, what if these people say that you do have the authority? He was gesturing to the crowds outside you know, the insurrectionists were already uh, amassing. This was January 5th. What if these people say that you do have the authority? If these people say you have the power, wouldn't you want to overturn the, the, the election? Okay. And then once Pence leaves the office all white, Trump opened a door and he left the door open and you could hear the excited screams and yells from his supporters filling the room. And Trump says to his people, isn't that great? Tomorrow is going to be a big day. Wow. And the big day tomorrow was, of course, inclusive of chance of hang Mike Pence, the gallows constructed for Mike Pence. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying put two and two together. There might be more to this Mike Pence story or Mike Pence might be very good at reading Trump in terms of his intentions. Even that first line you read, uh, you're not a friend of mine anymore. It just sounds like right out of a mafia movie. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it sounds like him kissing the, the, the guy on the cheeks, leaving your horse in the bed, all that stuff. Yeah, very cinematic. Well, that is all the time we have for this current event section. Up next are conversations with some Mexican Marxists. Today, we're pleased to have as guests on Radio Free Humanity... Alandeta and Sebastian Hernandez, 
who know each other very well. They were born in 1990 in Mexico City. They have degrees in economics from the Autonomous Technological Institute of Mexico. They do research on and write about Marxist economic theory. The topics that they write on include value, profit maximization, work intensity, and the relation between inputs to production uh, and output. And we want to talk to them about that. Also, Sebastian is involved in popularizing Marxist economic theory and translating and publishing it in Spanish. And I have a particular interest in some of what he's doing, and our listeners may as well. So we will be sure to talk about that. Welcome to both of you. Uh, thanks a lot for the invitation. <laughs> Thank you very much for having us today. Um, so maybe for both of you, you can take turns answering this, but how did you guys get interested in Marxist economic theory? You know, were you studying it in school? Were you working it out on your own? What, what's the what's the backstory here? We were both in the same group in the, our first semester. Didn't have not much of an idea of the Marxist economic theory until I think my fourth or fifth semester in the university. So for me, at least, it was more starting talking to Sebastian, who was more connected, has a, a really big library regarding Marxist economic theory and economic theory in general. From then on, it was more like a self-taught introduction to Marxist economic theory, mainly reading the capital. I'm Sebastian. In fact, we, we went to a um, private university where uh, Marxism is not a subject, not at all. Only in one subject uh, where um, it is more philosophical thought and it's very short uh, what they teach about Marx and it's mainly the philosophical studies uh, he did before Capital. But I was uh, very interested in, in learning it, especially because we were learning macroeconomics, macroeconomics, but they were not connected to reality at least not Mexico's or Latin American reality. So I started to get involved into, into Marx's uh, thought in, in general, not in a systematic way. It was quite random. I started uh, reading Althusser or I was reading Marx sometimes and sometimes Engels and sometimes lectures from the 60s, 70s. And I came back to Marx. It, it was a whole mess. But afterwards, I spoke to Alan. Uh, we, we knew each other since the first semester, and I started to read Marx in the second one. By the third, fourth, I started to talk to him that, look, this is a great theory. We should learn more about it. And yes, it was a self-taught journey with him uh, in which we had dialogues on what did you understand from Capital or from that book, what I understood, and we had like little debates in order to try to make sense of what we were reading. More specifically, what was attractive to you about reading Marx or Marxist theory? You know, did it like fill some gap or some void uh, that you noticed in your study of uh, economic theory? Were you sort of attracted to the politics of it first? And do you kind of, did you kind of consider yourself leftist and this was sort of the first theoretical stuff that you sunk your teeth into? You know, what was the, what was the main attraction or impetus for, for digging into Marx more? Sebastian speaking, well, in my case, there's a particular thing that when well, we were studying economics and it was profit. All the teachers talked about 
profit simply as the consumer surplus or the producer surplus, whatever it may be zero in, in any case. And it didn't make sense to me that in perfect competition, there was no profit. Then I thought, then this is completely absurd because the only thing I see in my surrounding is that profit is the most important thing. And I simply get into the web and I started looking to how other theories explain profit. And the one that I, um, I found more interesting was Marx's idea. Not that I understood it at the time, but it was the most uh, interesting for, for me. And I believe that from that on, I got a lot of questions uh, regarding not only profit, but other things. And I started to question Alan about how he thought about this stuff. And we started to think about it collectively because it didn't make sense to any of us. Uh, Alan is speaking now. Complementing a little bit what Sebastian said, I think at the beginning, what was for me most interesting is that Marx was talking about a specific way of theorizing the technical aspect of the production. What I didn't find really attractive from my economic classes, and in general from the program of our university, was that the common economic theory, the neoclassical economic theory, simply didn't took into consideration much of, of the aspects that I imagine are important in the production process. So for me, of course, uh, Sebastian was always really into this profit topic and complementing it with the, the technical aspect that Marx actually develops in capital. I think that was the two key aspects that took us at least where we are at the moment. I think that's, that's reflected, in fact, in our publications. We're trying to analyze, of course, profit based on the Marxist economic theory, but also taking really into consideration the, the technical part of the theory of the, and of the production process. That's why we're trying to come up with all of these models, for example, a, a, a production function. Right, and a production function is a mathematical function that relates the quantities of inputs used to produce to the amount of output that you get. But let me interject for the, the benefit of our listeners who might not know this. If, if you haven't uh, been trained in economics, you're likely not to know it because if you study, let's say, sociology or political science, what you get in the course of your studies in the lectures and the books is a variety of theories and a variety of approaches. What Sebastian and Alan are describing is not at all confined to the university they went to or to Latin America or to right now, you know, or when they went to school. When I was an economics student, in the United States in the mid-1970s, it was exactly the same issue, and it's this way really throughout the world. We learned the standard theory, and it wasn't even referred to as the standard theory. It was just, this is what it is, right? I had heard a bit about Marx, you know, I mean, I knew that he wrote something called Capital, but the idea that anybody was working along those lines today or was still interested in it, I, I didn't know. And I discovered the fact that there were that there was a revival of Marxian economic thinking just by happenstance. I was in the university uh, bookstore and I came across a book with a lot of papers in it called Critique of Economic Theory. And I bought that book and I tried to understand it, but it wasn't anything I learned in my university textbooks or from the professors. So this authoritarian way of indoctrinating new economists is very common and it's worldwide. 
Sebastian speaking, maybe I could add something that it came to my mind when Alan was speaking. He, he worked like in a manual process, so he had a very good understanding on how you use the inputs to get some output. And we were always speaking in the economics classes or courses about the production function. And the way in which we were trying to use those production functions to understand what he actually did or what we understood about production, it also didn't make sense. So I, I think that once we started with one question that it was profit, but then it was production, but then it was, it was just like a domino effect. And that was what made Mark so relevant to us because he was explaining everything connected and precisely in that way. So eventually this process of asking questions and starting to discover marks led to some more sustained research and some writing and publication. How did all that happen? It's Sebastian speaking. We started to look uh, for um, additional texts to try to understand this connection between production, uh, etc. But from the only way in which we understood economics, we only learn economics in, in the neoclassical way. So at the beginning, we were trying to get how do we understand Marx from this uh, stance. And it was very difficult. So we started to look for another text from contemporary Marxists or anyone who could help us. And we found that there was no uh, literature about the production function, except for one uh, text from Sheikh who uh, critiques the, the, the classical production function, specifically the Cobb Douglas production function. This is Anwar Sheikh? Yes. But we didn't uh, find anything else, not, not a creative thing, not, not in the sense of a critique, but in the creative thing. So we started to have weekly sessions where we tried to express mathematically in the terms that we understood Marx's volume one of Capital. So I think that that was another step that was very important in, in, in our beginnings. Right, and even Anwar Sheikh's work on the humbug production function is really not about production. It's really about the use of the Cobb-Douglas uh, model to try to explain uh, income distribution. Yeah, and actually, well, after starting with this type of research, let's call it, we tried to develop this production function. Of course, we were uh, highly influenced by our courses and all the material that we viewed in the university, because that's one key point, I think, that puts us a little bit apart here in Latin America from other Marxists, because we are trying to use what they see at some point as neoclassical say instruments like a mathematical function or or even equations whilst we were simply trying to understand capital through our mathematization let's say and through our own own view because we as, as sebastian mentioned we were trying to find in other authors some type of maybe production function or something that would help us understand better or more in the terms that we were accustomed for our classes, but we simply couldn't find it. So we we simply said, let's do it ourselves. I mean, a lot of the lack of attention to the issue, I think, has to do with a lot of people who call themselves Marxists or whatever. They're actually Schroffians. And Schroffian production functions are the physical quantities of the Schroffian model. So there's no ability to, to uh, substitute one input for another 
and you know everything is just pre-given so in other words if you work in that way that's what you you begin with are these fixed technical coefficients these this amount of this app input this amount of that input and so forth and the quantity of output that comes out and it's all very very simple and there's nothing to be said about it what, what would you say about that Sebastian again well I was puzzled the first time that I encountered with Giraffian theory because we went to the library in our private university and there was only all texts about uh, Marxist economic theory and the first one I found it was Morishima's and the way in which we were trying to understand production in the Marxist sense and trying to do this production function that was actually meaningful and that was that trying to explain or understand production in the real sense uh, when i encountered it with marishima it it was completely magical to me that as you say it was not about production it was about those inputs were magically transformed into some output and taking everything as a given it, it, it will simply reproduce the physical system as if it was that easy and, and then it didn't really explain all the pages that Marx wrote about production weren't simply not transmitted by those equations. So I, I think I, I was completely puzzled at the first time. And it wasn't afterwards when we started to look into value that we were simply completely uh, disconnected from them. We didn't see why that was Marxism. At some point you happen upon the temporal single system interpretation of Marx's value theory, the TSSI, um, which of course we've covered uh, multiple times on this podcast because of Andrew's involvement with the development of the TSSI. Um, when did you when did you happen upon the TSSI and how, how did that happen? Alan is speaking. Those weekly meetings that Sebastian was mentioning, I think at some point once he came with some paper, I don't recall which one in particular, but he mentioned, right, this theory. This was after we were already in the process of publishing our book, our mathematization for, for Capital. This is only in Spanish. Once we were already well in the process with the editor and, and all that, he found out about the TSSI, actually. Uh, it was a fortuitous encounter. It wasn't... We tried to find other views, other interpretations that might help us, of course, when we were trying to, to develop all these production function and all that but simply we we didn't find it previously but at that point uh, i mean everything made sense at least we we thought that we were basically re replicating the, the analysis that the the tssi did for most of of the concepts and, and the categories in marxist theory but on our own and simply uh, we thought this is great because at some point we we thought that our expression for example of of value with our production function was really accurate and we thought that at some point had never been done before but then we found tssi and we we found that there were a lot of similarities between what we were doing and the tssi sebastian speaking maybe i i should add some some context we worked for about a year, a year and a half, to do this um, mathematical expression of capital, to understand it for ourselves. 
And we did the production function, the technical composition of capital, and, and we went on and on and on, and, uh, defining unitary value or the socially necessary labor time, the weight average of the individual necessary labor times of uh, firms. And we kept on, and it wasn't until we had a lot of material when we thought we have actually understood uh, at least the first volume of capital that we went on to write a book, a book that was meant from students to students. Like we understand Marx's economic theory in this way. We also found a gap between the Marxists, I mean, the oldest scholars after Marx that wrote about his theory that they were very difficult. It, it was. It is not easy for a, a student to understand them. And there's also a lot of political or other texts that do not incursionate into the economic field. So we found a gap where students, I think, they are lost because they do understand the political thing and they are trying to get into the economic field, but they do not have the enough tools or the necessary tools to understand it. So we were trying to do this book for them. And as Alan says, it wasn't until, I don't know, like two weeks before the publishing that it was a self-published uh, book uh, because we didn't find anyone who was interested to do it. We spoke to four uh, editors and it wasn't um, that attractive to them. And it wasn't until that moment that I found Reclaiming Marxist Capital from Climate, but um, it wasn't free, so I couldn't buy it at that time. So I started looking for, for another papers and I found the book Non-Equilibrium uh, Economics from 1995, that it was in, in a free format in, in the web. And I told Alan, uh, look, what we thought that was innovative from, from our understanding, it wasn't. Specifically in one point, we mention in, in, in our book that value should be defined in temporal terms. In fact, we were also learning um, differential equations and we were trying to do that. So we thought that was new, different from what we uh, read from Marshima and then Stephen. And once we found the writings from the TSSI, we said, well, at least we're not crazy because we have found what Alan Freeman and Andrew Kleiman and other authors found 30 years before than us. And I, I think that was a, a very important moment for us because we stopped trying to be original or trying to contribute in some way to stop and read and learn from everything that was uh, done before. But, you know, that's very interesting. And of course, the TSSI developed very much in answer to the transformation problem. So when you say that you were developing you know, your ideas, your interpretations of Marx in a way that you eventually later found consonant with the TSSI. Was the transformation at all a consideration for you, or were you solely focused on understanding production functions through value theory? Sebastian speaking. Well, at first we were only uh, concentrated on the volume one. We were studying Marx's economic theory half-blind we didn't know about the transformation problem. So we didn't think that we shouldn't study Marx. There, there was no issue there. Uh, it wasn't until we found TSSI that we started to read the second volume and the third volume. 
And then we found the transformation problem. Alan is speaking. For us, the transformation problem wasn't actually a problem from the beginning because, as Sebastian said, we weren't that well known in, in several uh, other um, books and papers that have been published. And actually, I think it was mainly as we read the capital and as we were doing our, our mathematization of, of capital that we simply didn't find any type of, of transformation problem. At least we always found reading capital that both the technical aspect, the value formation, these two complemented each other perfectly in the theory and we simply didn't have this, this issue. Uh, Let me interject uh, for the benefit of our listeners. First of all, a while ago, somebody mentioned unitary value. In uh, English, we call it unit value, the value per unit. But the the so-called transformation problem refers to uh, the idea that the category of value does not appear in pure form in the uh, phenomenal world, in capitalist reality. What we have are prices that differ from values. And so Marx talks about the conversion of the category of value into that of price of production or the transformation of one to the other. So he's taking the theoretical category and showing the modified way in which it appears in reality. And what he says is, despite all of the the differences between prices and values, if you total up everything, uh, the total price of all the uh, commodities that are produced equals their total value, and the total profit that the capitalists get throughout the whole society equals the total surplus value pumped out of the workers. And more than a century of criticism has said, no, he screwed up. He forgot to transform the inputs and other nutty stuff like that. And so you got to do it right. And doing it right is always doing it the author's way. And lo and behold, much of Marx's critique of the political economy has to be rejected, modified, or whatever when one does it the supposedly correct author's way. So that is the the so-called transformation problem. Sebastian, again, I would add something about how we found about the transformation problem or all the critiques to Marx's economic theory is that we started speaking to teachers from our university. So they told us, why are you doing this? This is absurd. Your math doesn't make sense to anybody. Why are you trying to understand Marx? There's one reason why we do not teach Marx in our university is because he was wrong. And the main reason they told us that Marx was wrong is what because his labor theory of value was wrong. When I read uh, Morishima, he mentions that he contradicts himself because it's a dualistic um, system. But I only focused on, on the first part of the book. There's no speaking about the transformation problem in depth. So I thought they were referring to simply the critiques that labor cannot be valued uh, in the way in which marginalists or the subjective value theories make the critique of those allegedly objective value theories. So the thing that we perceived from those teachers was that they simply considered Marx wrong for that. Due maybe to some prejudices about um, people cannot be exploited because they are paid a wage, etc. But for us, strangely, the transformation problem was not the main issue. 
until we read the, the third volume and we started to look into the debate and we found that it was bigger issue than the, the issues that we had, like the production process. I'm extremely interested in the fact that you independently from myself and Alan Friedman and other people uh, that you mentioned from uh, decades past, you independently read Capital and developed an interpretation on your own that was at least similar to the temporal single system interpretation. And I want to kind of explore why that is. I have a, I have a suspicion. But let me ask the question this way. When you first started to like think rigorously about production and valuation, and you mentioned that you began to say that it's temporal, it's a sequence of activities that take place. What part of capital were you referring to? What were you thinking about that Marx wrote uh, that gave you these ideas? Alan speaking, in the beginning, it wasn't directly Marx. Rather, I was working in a production process in a, in a factory, and directly what I saw in the production, when I tried to transform that or interpret that in a mathematical function, is when simply started to came up this idea of trying to see production as in phases, right? As in a, as it is in time. So based on that technical aspect of our interpretation and basically reading Marx at the same time, I think that's one of the of the main points where we started to develop this interpretation quite similar to the TSSI. Okay. So my sense is that what you were connecting to is the fact that you experienced capitalist production as a process. And Marx talks about the process, the labor process, the valorization process, the process of production of surplus value, the process of production of absolute surplus value, the process of production of relative surplus value. So you immediately had some affinity with this notion that all of this stuff is a process. That, that might not sound like a big deal to people. That is a huge deal. Because the Schroffians, the mainstream Marxian economists, even the neoclassical economists, they do not theorize any of this stuff as a process. They don't deny that there's a process, but the way they decide to be rigorous or whatever they think they're doing, they eliminate all processual elements from their understanding of uh, what takes place. Sebastian again. Yes, I think Alan described it perfectly. It was that way. And for us, it was common sense, like logic, when we were reading Marx and, and we were working on ourselves, uh, Alan in a factory. I, I wasn't in a factory, but I was also working. So when Marx explains, as Sandra says, the labor process and the valorization process, when inputs transfer their value to the output, can only happen in time. We did an equation of the value transfer that it's run in the terms of the TSSI, which is consistent and ours was not consistent. But we immediately knew that we had to introduce time variable to consider that it was that process. And I would like to say that at the beginning, we were not accurate on understanding Marx in the valorization process because we didn't understand the melt. It was completely fuzzy for us. And the MELT stands for Monetary Expression of Labor Time. 
my guess is the inconsistency you were referring to is that you understood that value formation takes place in time, it's temporal, but you didn't yet understand that there's a single system of values and prices. Is that, am I right? As we didn't understand the melt, but we were trying to make sense of the measurement units, we simply used the melt to do it. And we didn't question it that much. And it wasn't after we read the TSSI text that the melt became meaningful to us. Right. Okay. Well, as I was saying, you know, in Marx's theory, the total price of all the commodities that are produced is equal to the total value. But one way of understanding the total value in Marx's theory is that it's a number of hours of labor time. And prices are, of course, money. Okay, so you're trying to equate an amount of money to an amount of labor time. You can't do so, right? I mean, you know, apples have to be equated with apples, okay? So what you need is some way of converting from units of labor time to units of money or backwards equally backwards from units of money to units of labor time and that's what the monetary expression of labor time does and that concept is there in marx it's uh, chapter seven on the labor process and the valorization process uh in, in volume one of capital he doesn't call it monetary expression of labor time but the concept is there and basically which is the conversion factor? You know, what exact number? Well, it's the one that makes the total price equal to the total value true. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. 
but we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So for either one of you, what's been your impression of of the reception of the TSSI amongst uh, professors you know or in in the, the economics or Marxist academic world in Latin America? Yes, the, the first encounter we had with teachers and students from the public universities uh, was when we tried to present our work, and we found two generations. An old generation that we simply consider us like outsiders. They are trying to come from a private university to teach us what we know in a public university that is Marxist theory. And a younger generation who actually gave us the opportunity to speak to students and to speak to them. And they were really thrilled with the idea that we could contribute in some way and that we could uh, start working together. But it was the other professors who are completely sure that, for example, that the transformation problem is indeed a problem, that Occasion's theorem has not been refuted, etc. So they started to consider us more like not taking us seriously. Afterwards, when we started to consider about TSSI, well, it was um, the the perfect combination that you come from a private university and you are speaking about TSSI. There is no room for for that kind of speaking. And these are not the same kind of people that were your professors when you were a student. These are left-leaning or Marxist professors and economists. That's right. They are they teach the courses on Marxist economic theory, and I think that it's not that they didn't let us to to speak to them, but afterwards we understood that it's not a personal thing, but more of a structural or institutional thing. And I believe it's not exclusive of Mexico because I have also spoke to people from Costa Rica, Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, etc. And it's the same thing that they simply don't want to speak about CSSI. They know that everything they have studied and learned before, that's right. So it doesn't matter if the TSSI has something contribute or no, they they don't want to listen about it. They simply put a label on you like you are a temporalista in Spanish or you are from the TSSI and you're simply wrong and that's it. There's no much of debate. And I believe that the, the crucial thing here is that students are not able to get to know TSSI because they're teachers do not teach TSSI to them, not even mention it as something that exists. And even when 
they are the ones interested in learning something something new they don't have the opportunity to to do it so to try to boil this down to one word would you describe this as censorship sebastian again i think yes but it's like a veiled censorship it's not a censorship that you cannot do your things obviously on your own it's simply that you don't have the public space to speak about this i think the first and the most um important thing is that the TSSI writings were in English and only in English and they are not translated to Spanish and they are not incorporated into the courses of the professors in the university. If some student or some young scholar who is trying to, in his studies of the master's or the PhD, if they want to use these new ideas from the TSSI, they are also not censored in the sense that they cannot use them, but they do not have the same support as if they were using the same things that, for example, this Russian theory. So, if somebody wanted to do some research of a temporal single system nature, they would be allowed to do it, but they wouldn't get the kind of support that the people who work in the tradition of the professors are working in. Is, is that what you're saying? That's right. That's what I'm saying. Because I must clear something out. The way in which the public university system works is that mainly the, the professors are the ones who give the support to the students. And it, they do not have such institutional support. It's very personal. So the person matters a lot. So it's not that the professor won't allow the, the student to read or to speak about it, but they won't give them the support, nor the, nor the you can read this author or you should read that paper, but they simply leave them alone. And if they do not have all the knowledge to do it by themselves, they will simply want to. Right. And th this is not, again, something that's particular to Mexico or to Latin America. It's the same exact stuff e everywhere. You know, I can't document the following. You're hearing it secondhand. But uh, in the United States, in New York City, there was a economic student, you know, PhD student at the new school. And he wanted to do a dissertation, which would have been, you know, a, a temporal single system interpretation. And they had a little seminar of the students about what you're working on, how you're working towards your, your dissertation. And what he conveyed, the student, is Anwar Sheikh was very, very irate, angry. And after the thing ended, he followed the student and said, you do this, you're going to ruin your life, you're going to ruin your career, the TSSI is fake, blah, 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 blah. You know, he didn't want to say that all publicly, but uh, that's what he said in, in, in private. So the, the, the same kind of methods of, of censorship and, and suppression, they, they're worldwide. Do you have a sense of what the, the reason for the hostility or the people not being open to the TSSI? Is it just because there's a certain inertia that's part of people's careers. Is there something else going on? What was what your sense? I have some guesses. I, I believe the most important thing is that these professors, that they have from one side 
certain reputation and decades of work on the conventional Marxism, specifically Strafen. But there is also, in, in Mexico at least, and I believe it has a lot of impact in Latin America, not only Strafen, but this kind of philosophical point of view that in these times are leaning towards uh, Michael Heinrich's interpretation. These two professors of, from these two lines of, of study or these trends, I think they don't want to feel that all their life, all their contributions that they have done in the last 20, 30, 50 years will be lost because students start to lean towards uh, TSSI. I think they, they are not viewing this thing in the scientific, in the truly academic motive to make research. That is adding knowledge. And let's say that if, if we consider there is a truth about something that we are trying to research about that truth, or we are trying to add knowledge to get closer to that truth. And they have done this contribution. They have studied and they have taught. Maybe some things may be false, maybe some things may be true, but we shouldn't try to judge someone's intellectual trajectory just because one idea was wrong. I, I think that we could admit that we made a, a mistake and, and that's it. We made a mistake and that is just another step to a better understanding of things. It's not wrong to, to do mistakes. And I believe they have worked for so long that it is very difficult for them to admit that they made some mistakes. Alan, what do you think? Well, actually, uh, I think what Sebastian is saying is really accurate. And also we have experienced it uh, with some researchers, of course, here in Latin America, in particular with one debate that we had. We published this critique of his ideas, and we were trying simply to debate, right, to, to try to generate this knowledge, improve our knowledge of capitalism. But basically, it was more as if it was a, a personal offense for him. So I think that this describes perfectly the attitude of several professors towards TSSI here in Latin America. I think it's really difficult for students to try to do some research. I mean, we're talking now of TSI, but I'm, I'm assuming that this, this attitude would be to any type of interpretation different from, from the, the one of these professors. It's been at some point really difficult, but at, at the same time, really, really good for us to, to try to, to break these barriers that are here in Latin American academia. I think one of the things that TSSI does very clearly that's very threatening is that it clearly distinguishes between an interpretation of Marxist theory that makes Marx you know, internally consistent and other people's interpretations, which are often passed off as Marx, you know, Marx via Heinrich, Marx via Sheik, Marx via Mosley. But from the perspective of the TSSI, these are not Marxist theories. Once you've read the TSSI, TSSI stuff, you realize these people, they might be calling themselves Marxists, but they're replicating the, the paradigms, the ideas of bourgeois theory. They're coming up with the same results that the Strafians do. And so even if they've devoted their careers to trying to, as they see it, like, you know, salvage Marx, they've probably kind of done the opposite. So it's difficult to accept that they're not really doing Marx, that they're doing something else. I think that's probably one of the most threatening things to them. Not just that, it's, just that it's different, but that the language they use to describe what they're doing, which is you know Marxist theory, is maybe not something they can actually own anymore. Yeah, I mean, people don't even have to say we're wrong. They could say, well, 
there's Marx's theory over here, and we have a different theory. But there are so many people who can't bring themselves to say that. So, you know, I always describe it as wanting to have your cake and eat it too. On the one hand, they claim, you know, that Marx is wrong about this, wrong about that. You got to correct him this way. You got to revise him the other way. On the other hand, they claim to be Marx's successors, you know, the true inheritors of Marxism. And, and that is why I think they are so um, resistant to giving any legitimacy or validity to a different interpretation. They're resistant to even talking about interpretations of Marx as things that can be more or less accurate. And this extends well beyond economists who have a vested interest in, you know, their own theories. It extends to people doing philosophy, people doing sociology, political science. There's a very widespread resistance among almost all of these academics in the social sciences and the humanities to they're extremely resistant to any real inquiry into what Marx's actual views, his actual writings, his actual theories were. They're not against, you say this, I say that, you know, but it always becomes, in the end, Marx disappears, Marx drops out, and it ultimately, you know, in their hands becomes, a, you know, just a discussion of my approach versus your approach without their being anything that could be said, well, hey, there was this guy writing about 150 years ago, his name was Marx, and this was his theory, his approach. They, they want to prevent that. And it's, it's not only the economists, and it's not only with uh, people with, you know, some vested interests who are like this. This is kind of what is accepted in the whole academic uh, milieu. And, I mean, it, it, it's just another expression of, of you know, the post-truth ethos. You know, the left is not something apart from this devolution into post-truth. Sebastian, again, there's an additional factor. Marxism becomes part of your identity, right? You, you feel like you understand capitalism so well and that it comes to your head and you say, I, I, I am a Marxist. I, I want to say I am the Marxist, as, as he says, that I am the true successor from Marxist ideas. And I think that's very powerful for professors because they have a privileged or um, a special place in society. They are teaching young students. So their identity, their power that comes from Marx, they want to use it with students or with all their social surrounding. So they would be losing this power if they start to consider that there are another interpretations and that maybe those other interpretations are better in making Marx consistent or better to understand capitalism indeed, as they say. So I, I think they do not want to lose that power. And also, if their students start to talk about TSSI and they have to debate with them about a different interpretation than the one they have been teaching for the last 30 years, they would be losing that power because they are no longer the all uh, knowledgeable uh, professor that actually knows Marx and is going to teach it to everyone. No, they are now learning about Marx with other people that do not have that status. That's also a possible uh, thing that's going on. Yeah, I think that's well said. 
Um, can you guys close by telling us what you're working on right now? Translations, research? Explain. We are working on, on the work intensity um, integration to the Marx economic theory because it was a, a variable that was uh, left aside for so long. We found uh, recently, one month ago, uh, a paper in which work intensity is introduced to the standard uh, simultaneous framework. So we read the, the paper, very interested in it, and we wrote uh, uh, some critiques about it and have sent it already to, to the authors. So I think we will be writing a paper about this, because if we introduce work intensity into the standard simultaneous framework, the conclusion is that it produces absolute surplus value, which is not what Marx said. Uh, so we will be working on that. and. On my own, I work on translating TSSI's writings into Spanish. I've been doing this since 2015, so it's been six years. Because once Alan and I uh, found that nobody knew TSSI in, in the public universities or with any young student, I thought that we should be doing something for them to get to know the TSSI. So I've been translating mainly Alan Freeman's papers, Andrew Kleiman's papers, Nick Potts' papers, and those in which also contribute Alejandro Ramos, Rodriguez, um, Karkedi, etc. And I upload them to a blog that is called Tiempos Críticos. Uh, it's from WordPress. That's a blog that I started with some friends from UNAM here in Mexico. And uh, right now, I have transformed that blog um, individually, not, not collectively, into the main uh, way to popularize TSSI writings in Spanish. Well, that sounds like some great work. And this has been a great interview. So thank you, both of you, Sebastian and Alan, for being on the podcast today. Yes, thank you very much. This has been really helpful for me. It's been enlightening. Thanks a lot to both of you and to Marx Humanist Initiative. I think this is really great for us and it's good to be present in a podcast here in, in the States and in Anglophone countries. So thanks a lot for the invitation. Thanks to Brennan and, and Andrew. Uh, thank you very, very much for inviting us and having us today. I think this will be very interesting for also for Latin American uh, audience. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 